0: Now we come to chapter 22, which now will slow down. And that's typically um, not uncommon in the Bible where I will just flash through these scenes really quickly and then slow down majorly for another story. So life seems good now. Abraham has a long-awaited son that he wants. All threats and obstacles seem to be removed. He's got a pretty good treaty with Abimelech who's going to protect his interests, which means his son is now safe from foreign enemies, so in in some ways that he's living in the land of the Canaanites, which presents a threat to Abraham, might not be as much of a threat anymore because one of these Canaanites has made a treaty with him and actually will protect him from other Canaanites as a greater king. So it's life is good. Everything seems to be going the way it comes until God comes to him and says, now kill your son. Now Abraham doesn't know as much as what we know. But as the reader, we're immediately told that sometime after these things, God tested Abraham. So that it immediately releases the tension for us. We know that this is just a test. We know that there's no real high stakes involved in this. But the other thing that you have to understand that it makes you connect to Abraham even more because Abraham doesn't know this. Abraham doesn't know that this is a test. Now, We're going to find out later. He's going to figure it out. But at the same time, figuring it out and knowing exactly what's involved in the test and how far it goes are two completely different things. And so God is coming to test Abraham in his faith. And so God says to Abraham, and Abraham responds, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will indicate to you. This is huge. So God says, take your only son. Now your first thought should be, that's not his only son. He has Ishmael. But the point is that Ishmael's been sent away and Isaac is the only only true son of the promise. The point here is that God is not just emphasizing that he wants him to sacrifice his son. He's emphasizing that he wants him to sacrifice the promises of God. Because God made it very clear that only through Isaac will become the great nation. Yes, we're told that Abraham's son, between him and Sarah, will be. But God also, in chapter 17, said And then later in 19 said, it's going to be Isaac. Isaac is the promise. Isaac is the fulfillment. Which means if Abraham kills Isaac, he's killing the promises of God. So that puts the stakes so much higher. It's not just your own child, which would be like, oh my gosh in itself. But it's literally taking everything that you've been following God on the last 25 years, and God is calling you to kill that. In the future, it's like offering up your salvation as a sacrifice. Offering up the Holy Spirit as a sacrifice. Not that you're killed, but giving it all up. God is asking him to give up everything. Literally. And the question is, will Abraham do this? Now, this is one of the disadvantages of growing up in the church. Um, There's very few, but this is one of them. You know when you watch a movie, like movies like Inception or Interstellar, hopefully you guys have seen those, those are such cool movies, um, but movies where you've you got to figure it out and, or there's some kind of surprise at the end and you're watching these movies and you're on your edge of your seat and you don't know whether it's going to happen and you're trying to figure it out and, and you're like, wow, that was amazing how they pulled that all together and that first time wow experience is amazing. And yeah, it's not the same when you go back and rewatch it again, but you can kind of relive that because you had that first wow moment. And then you see things that you missed the first time and it becomes even like, wow, like, oh my gosh, this whole plan. I never had that with the Bible. It just kind of grew up and the stories were always there, which is a great thing. I'm not trying to make that bad. I'm glad that I grew up with those stories and they were part of my childhood. Oh, how cool it would be to read the Bible for the first time as an adult, not knowing the ending of the story, to have those surprises, those wow moments, and those connections. And that's one of the very few disadvantages of growing up in the Christian church and just having the stories just gradually kind of come here and there and there and not in a chronological order or sit down just read through it like a good novel and you're just gripped by it. And we know the stories and yes, it's cool to see deeper connections that we've never seen before, but that, oh my gosh, I have no idea what's coming next. It's not there. And you have to realize that for the original readers, it is there. The first time that they've read this, the first time they're going through, they don't know what's coming. Yes, they know it's a test, but this still doesn't like, it's still, I don't know what's coming. And how cool of a thing that would be to read the Bible like that for the first time ever. And so this is the way that we need to do the best that we can, that though we can't feel that gripping, I don't know what's coming next, we need to remind ourselves that that's what the narrator wants you to feel, though. That's the way he's writing the story. He's building tension intentionally so that you feel that presence of God there. And so Abraham is the question, what is he going to do? How is he going to respond to this? And he does it. It so says, early in the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young servants with him, along with his son Isaac. And when he had cut the wood for the burnt offering, he started out for the place God has spoken to him. You see, I can't imagine what's going through a father's head. We're told that it's going to be three days later. Those have got to be the longest three days of your entire life especially the minute you pack that knife and knowing that it's there the entire time. Because remember, he says burnt offering, which means knife and then burn the body once you're done. And those three days, and you see the the mental disorientation by the fact that he saddles the donkey first, then goes cut wood and prepares things. That's not the order that you do things typically. And so the fact that he's doing things haphazardly in the wrong orders means that he's probably his mind is somewhere completely different in all this as he's there's a lot of theological thinking that's happening here right now and a lot of emotional angst that is going on right now and so the narrator's done this to show you that he's in turmoil over this but despite the turmoil he's doing it now that doesn't mean he's going to follow through but he's doing it he's doing it and so he goes up and he takes the servants with him. And on the third day, verse 4, Abraham caught sight of the place in the distance. And that's the other thing, too. God doesn't tell him. This takes you back to chapter 12. Go, Abraham, and take your Sarah and leave your family and go to the land that I'll show you. Now God says, take your son and go to Moriah, and then I, and you don't know where, but I'll point out the mountain when you get there. And so he's reliving that first call, so to speak, with higher stakes So the third day they go up to the place, the servants used to stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up there. We will worship and then we'll return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son, Isaac. And then he took the fire and the knife in his hand and the two of them walked on together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, what is it, my son? He replied, here is the fire and the wood. And Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God, then you know that's gotta rent your heart. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham replied, the two of them continued on together. Now, is this point that you know that Abraham is figuring things out? So here's the question: why would Abraham do this? What does Abraham know about God so far? One. He knows that God's character is different than all the other gods. After 25 years, he knows that he's not capricious or vindictive. He's not the kind of God that just manipulates you and messes with you. He's the kind of God that is faithful even when you're not faithful. He's the kind of God that values life so much that he abhors child sacrifice. Two, he knows that God is all-powerful and can do anything even resurrect a dead womb. Three, but he also knows that God has every right to demand on a child's sacrifice, but because he's also a loving God, a covenantal God, a God that did not create just to rule, but a God who created to have a relationship, then to ask for a child's sacrifice goes against his character in a loving, covenantal, relational sense. But here's the other thing that Abraham knows. It is only through Isaac that the promises are going to come. So what do you do with that? A God who hates child sacrifice, yet is asking you and has every right to demand your child. A God who's promised you that Isaac will be the source of the blessings, but is now asking you to kill the blessings of God but a God that has also proven himself to be all-powerful and completely faithful in all situations. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews 11 tells you that Abraham, by faith, offered up his son as a sacrifice, whom through God promised that the blessings would come, but he reasoned that God would raise his son from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did. Now, if you're plunging a knife down into your kid, you can argue technically all you want that he didn't actually technically bring him back from the dead, but in all intents and purposes, he did. When you're like nanoseconds away from a knife going into his heart and you somehow stop. Which also shows you how incredibly Abraham's listening to God. (laughs) If you're thrusting a knife down as hard as you can to kill your son and he says stop and you're like, you've been listening big time. Your ear is tuned to that voice. And it reminds you of Jesus saying, My sheep know my voice, and they listen when I speak. So Abraham reasoned. Now, this is incredible because there's no concept of resurrection like we think of resurrection. Yes, the word resurrection shows up in ancient documents and stuff, but just because they use the same word doesn't mean they have the same definitions. I can say, I love my wife, and I love that movie. And I love my children, but I'm not using love in the exact same way in all three of those scenarios. Love is completely different in all three of those scenarios. And so the same thing is when the ancients used the word resurrection, they didn't mean a bodily resurrection. The Egyptians, they didn't value the body. And so what they meant was a spirit resurrection, their soul going into the afterlife, because they believed that it was possible. We have this concept that everybody's soul has life and goes somewhere, even the people who go to hell. But the ancients didn't believe that. The ancients had this concept of souls disappearing or souls staying asleep. But if you really wanted to be awakened into the afterlife, then you, there's a resurrection. And when they meant resurrection, they just meant life and the afterlife. They didn't mean your body actually coming back. And so that concept of bodies actually coming back is a very foreign concept. So the fact that Abraham is making the conclusion in a culture that doesn't think about resurrection like you, like for us it would be like, well, yeah, because it's all throughout this, the, the Second Testament and the Gospels. But for Abraham, this is a brand new revolutionary thought that he's come up with. And I'm not saying he's the only one that's ever thought about, but it's not like going over the airwaves all the time which means he's never seen a resurrection, he's never heard of a resurrection, it's not a part of the language of any culture or religion around him, and he's the first Jew ever with no Bible, and yet he comes to the conclusion that God's going to raise his boy from the dead. That's incredible. The that Abraham has become... The Abraham knows God so well that he can connect theological dots and anticipate what God is going to do, even though there's no history of God ever doing that that he's seen. Do you know how incredible that faith is? you know how incredible that relationship that he has with God? It's one thing for us to say, I have faith because I have 50 million stories from the Bible and testimonies at church and in my own life where God says, I will do this and he does that. But to make conclusions that God has never done based on things that are already there that he's provided and come to a conclusion like that and to be right? That's incredible. And this is what shows you that Abraham is a sinner. He's a scumbag. He fails drastically. He is not anywhere close to meeting the requirements of the law. But Abraham is a man of faith because he knows God. And he can anticipate God. And I'm not saying every scenario. But he knew God. And remember, God only gives you what you can handle. God knew that he had enough to make this conclusion. And Abraham did it. And that is the faith that you need to see. Not just a man who's willing to offer up everything to God, but a man who's willing to offer up everything to God based on something that he knows about God, but he's never seen or been promised of God. And he makes the conclusion that God will give him back. Now, you don't have to wait for Hebrews to see this. Remember, all the author of Hebrews has is the First Testament when he starts writing Hebrews. It's all here. Because if you pay attention to it, it says that they go up the hill and he tells the servants, we are going to worship God and then we will come back. There is no we if you burn your child. And then not only that, the boy, Isaac says, where's the sacrifice, God? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. Well, wait a minute. God already provided a sacrifice. It's right there, Isaac, talking to you. Because he doesn't anticipate. Because see, if God, if he sacrifices a kid and this kid is raised from the dead, he has to sacrifice to God as a thank you offering for what just happened. But he has no lamb with him, which means he expects God to actually even provide a lamb for him on top of that. So he can thank God for the resurrection of his child that hasn't happened yet. And so the clues are all there. And he's staying that. So this three-day journey, what we think is absolute turmoil for him, which it is, don't get me wrong, because it's one thing to come to this conclusion, it's another thing to find out that you're right. (laughs) But at the same time, he isn't just fretting and worrying and stressing. He's thinking about God. And the more he thinks about God, the more he comes to this conclusion. And the more that he comes to this conclusion, then he can confidently profess that conclusion to the people around him. And that's key too. It's not just worrying and angst in his life. That angst has driven him to think about God and his character. To come to conclusions about who he is. And this is the faith. So he gets to the top of the hill. And he pulls up the knife to kill him. And Abraham reached out, verse 10, took the knife and prepared to slaughter his son. But Yahweh's angel called him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He answered, do not harm the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Now, here's the other thing, too. God didn't know this already? <laughs> I thought, God. Now, it's one thing for God to say, where are you in the garden? We're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. He's drawing their faith on that kind of stuff. But this is more than just say, hey, where are you? This is God saying, now I know. As if I didn't know before. And I I did this test because I was on the edge of my seat wondering what you were going to do. (laughs) Now we know that's not right. Now listen, if all I had was this passage, I would have the right to conclude that God did not know. He said it right there in his own mouth. But when I put this in the context of the entire Bible, God makes it so clear that he does know everything. Which then means, what do I do with that statement. Now remember I told you early that not everything that we say is prescriptive. Most of the time it's descriptive, meaning that not everything I'm saying is a logical statement about how I view things. Like I'm going to watch the sunset. That's not prescriptive. I'm not declaring to you that I really truly believe that sun sets and, the, and that's what happens. It's descriptive. Right? Or, I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. I'm not telling you I'm actually going to eat a horse. I'm describing how I feel in that moment. And we call it metaphors and figures of speeches. But the idea is that not everything is God proclaiming this is exactly a prescriptive technical idea. It's descriptive. And I can say this is descriptive in the context of so many prescriptive statements of I know all things. In fact, he knows all the possible futures that you could have chosen in every scenario. So, what is he saying here? God enters into relationships. Just as Christ gave up the all knowingness. Not that he ceased to be all knowing, but he ceased to operate on that knowledge at all times in order to become a servant. See, Christ knew everything. But Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he chose not to access that omniscience for the sake of becoming a suffering servant. You're not much of a servant, you're not much of a human. Having an experience of what it means to be human—if you can still—if you're still accessing all of your divine attributes, it's not that he ceases to be God; he ceases to access them so that he can better know what it's like to be human and better have a relationship. For example, I could clobber and destroy my girls when I'm wrestling with them. It is within my physical strength and power. And I know this is a horrible thought, but. It makes my point. I could annihilate and kill and destroy and crush my daughters if I wanted to because I have the power and the strength as a grown man to do that. But because I value my relationship with them, my love with them more than my power, I choose not to access that power as I wrestle with them. Because acting like I'm being beaten up acting like that they actually are like having a good chance against me <laughs> is a much better relationship and connection with them than truly trying to prove a point to them about how strong I am. That doesn't build a relationship. And so in those moments, I choose to not access my power for the sake of the relationship. And God is doing the same thing here. For the sake of the relationship, he chooses not to access that knowledge. And I have no idea what that looks like. I don't think God's like giving himself temporary amnesia or something or locking that thought away. I don't know. We're just doing the best that we can with a human language talking about a divine being. And so for whatever reason, he chooses not to access that for the sake of the relationship. If you had a friend... That traveled into the future and knew everything that you and them did together, and then they come back to the relationship and they're like, oh, I totally know what you're gonna do next. Da 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 da, all around da-da-da. You would feel like that's not much of a relationship. They know everything that you're gonna do before you're gonna do it, and they're laughing about the joke before you've even finished it. That's not a mutual relationship, that's you left out of your own relationship. And so, like I said, these are the best examples that I can give with human words and experiences talking about an omniscient, transcendent God. But the reality is God is not choosing to know all these moments and interact with Abraham. Because what God chose to do is to condescend himself into history and into Abraham's world to go through this scenario with Abraham for the sake of having a mutual experience together because God is just as much relational as he is transcendent and this is why it's sometimes so hard to understand God is because if he was just purely relational or purely transcendent that would be hard enough but it would be a little bit easier but when you bring those two worlds together and a being that no other being is like that then God becomes an incredible mystery And this is the best we can do to explain what's going on. But God chose the relationship, and he says, not so much now I know, but we've done this together. We've done this together. And we have a greater trust and a deeper relationship going through this together. And that's probably the better way you should understand a statement like that. Because God is a relational being.